Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. You are now listening to Season 4 of the Gospel Feast Podcast. It's time to feast on the words of Jesus Christ. The history of Israel knows at least 31 Zechariahs. We know the last of these by the Greek version of his name, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, whom the Lord Jesus Christ called the greatest prophet up to that time. We can't spend a season on the book of Zechariah, the Levite priest and prophet, and not conclude it with the last of his name, Zechariah of the New Testament. Because the Lord said, unto the elders of Israel during his ministry. Upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. We can't have a gospel feast on Zechariah and not talk about the last, and some say the greatest, Zechariah. This becomes increasingly important when we understand the symbolic, symbiotic relationship between these two Zacharias. The New Testament uses the Greek spelling of his name, Zacharias, 
which we will use here to lessen confusion. While it is purely conjecture, it is not beyond reason that Zachariah, the subject of our feast, was the ancestor of Zacharias, father of the Baptist. The fact that both were of the tribe of Levi, specifically assigned to the temple, and that we find reoccurring names in both families makes this a strong possibility. When one adds the fact that God has specifically made a point of linking these two Zacharias together as a type of each other, the possibility becomes stronger. We need to study John's father because of an unexpected statement from the Lord during his earthly ministry. What can we possibly make from this? Luke 7:28. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. There is no greater prophet than John the Baptist? How can this be? Let's explore briefly some facts about the Baptist and his father, Zacharias. Jesus of Nazareth was of the tribe of Judah, specifically the house of David. Famous Jewish disciples, Saul of Tarsus, later Paul and Matthew Levi, among others, and all Christians hold that he was the true heir to David's throne. Despite all of this, whenever the Lord needed to rattle Jewry with proof of his divine calling among them, he used John the Baptist as his big gun. Here is one example of many. Matthew twenty-one twenty-three. And when Jesus was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching, and said, By what authority dost thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which, if ye tell me, I, in like wise, will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say, John's authority was from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did ye not then believe what John taught you? But if we say, John's authority was only of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And so they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said back to them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. John the Baptist was Jesus' maternal kinsman. We don't know their exact relationship, only that the scriptures say that Jesus' mother Mary and John's mother Elizabeth were cousins. The word cousins here is really the Greek word sugenes, which means relative or kinswoman. John was a miracle baby in that his elderly parents had long given up on having a child. John was raised in the desert, some have suggested at Qumran, but this is unknown, presumably by his mother. When he did return to civilized Judea, he was dressed in a rough garment made of camel hair and leather. He had a diet of cooked locusts and honey, but when he spoke to the Jewish people, they came out to hear what he had to say. They revered him as a prophet, and the powerful elders and ruling families of Judea feared him. Many of Jesus' original disciples and apostles were first part of John's flock, and when the time for Jesus' dispensation opened, he went to John the Baptist to be baptized publicly. John was beheaded by King Herod's son, and this closed his mortal ministry. John's life is impressive, but is it more impressive than Abraham, the father of the faithful? 
Moses the lawgiver, Isaiah whose prophetic and poetic words are called great by God himself? How could a poor desert prophet, dressed in rough camelhide, forced to eat bugs for food, be greater than all of these? The answer is sad, profound, illuminating, and astounding. Let's investigate a little more. The Baptist was a profound preacher. He had the gift of words. Like a two-edged sword, he could cut and turn the people, both ways, in and out. Matthew 3.1 In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Powerful stuff. People from all walks of Jewish life, rich and poor, came to hear him preach. They were drawn to him, actively seeking his advice and being moved upon by the powerful spirit he brought. They wanted more, and they wanted to know if he was the promised Son of Man, the anointed Christ, that Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah had told them would be coming in their very day. So, Luke 3.10 And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth, and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. The Jews were expecting the Christ. Could this be he? Andrew, the son of a fisherman named Jonah, and another young man named John, the son of another well-to-do fisherman named Zebedee, were there with the crowds. Even the elders of Israel came, or sent representatives, 
to survey the happenings and listen to the Baptist preach. Zebedee's son John would later become an apostle of the Lord. Here is his eyewitness account. John 1.14 And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed, and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elijah, who was promised to return before the end? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet, the Elias? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him, and said unto him, Why baptizedest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet, the restorer Elias? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is, who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The people thought that John the Baptist might be the Christ, Elijah, or the expected one, the Restorer. But I ask again, why would a man dressed thusly get the attention of everyone and be called the greatest prophet by the Lord? There are a few reasons. Let's take the simple ones first. John was baptizing and calling to the people from Bethabara. This is important. Bethabara is the site where Joshua, the prince of Ephraim, separated the waters of the river Jordan and officially entered into the promised land. It was here that he set up pillars in the river for each of the tribes of Israel. It is also the site where Elijah the prophet was taken into heaven in the Lord's own chariot. It is here that Elijah threw down his robe, called a mantle, and it fell upon another great prophet, his successor Elisha. The final prophets to speak at the close of the Old Testament, before the heavens shut themselves and Judah was left without communication, were Haggai, Zechariah, of whose book we are studying this season, and Malachi. These last prophets closed Moses' dispensation with the promise of the Messiah's coming, the return of Elijah, and we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient texts and commentary, a promised restorer. These are powerful reasons, but the most powerful of all has been left for us in one small verse of Luke. Luke 1, 5. There was, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. This is so huge that it cannot be ignored, but of course it is. The Jews of Jesus' day understood it, so we are going to as well. It pertains to John's parentage, being the only son of elderly 
Zacharias, and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pretty straightforward. She was a descendant of Aaron, the older brother of Moses. As such, her children had right to the Aaronic order of the priesthood. She was a rather close relation to the mother Mary, although we don't know how exact the relationship was. Since Mary was of the royal house of Judah, and Elizabeth was a direct ancestor of Aaron, combined with the fact that Elizabeth and Mary were most likely separated generationally, they were probably first or second cousins. But we don't know. I came from a large close family and know many of my first and second cousins. We are good friends, although many of them are nearly double my age. The fond familial experiences we have had regardless makes Mary and Elizabeth's relationship completely relatable to me. In terms of the Lord's statement of John's greatness, we need to focus more closely on his father, Zacharias. The scriptures tell us that he was a priest of the course of Abiah. This is important. In the days of King David, the priestly family of Levi was organized into 24 courses. Today we might call them temple shifts. David insisted at this time that all of the priests prove their lineage back to Aaron directly. The shift of the family of Abiah had the eighth rotation in terms of running the sacrifices and ordinances of Moses' tabernacle and once built Solomon's temple. A chief priest named Abiah returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel, Joshua, and Zechariah when the time came to rebuild the temple. A priest by that name signed the covenant found in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 7. Zacharias, John's father, belonged to this great Aaronic priesthood family. What makes this also fascinating is that by the time we come down to John the Baptist, Zacharias was the only Aaronic priest left who had an undisputed and provable claim to his office all the way back to Aaron. Did you hear it? Zacharias was the rightful high priest over all of Israel. Now the story of John's birth takes on more profound meaning and why it needed to be preserved for the ages. Here it is from the Gospel of Luke. Let's enjoy it together. Luke 1, 5. There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of people were praying without at the time of incense. Where Zacharias should have been the chief high priest, he was not. As an elderly man, he and his wife had no child, and so many years had now passed and having a child was not possible. Tradition says that on this particular occasion, Zacharias had gone into the temple with a heavy heart. The people outside did too. They knew that without a son, the last official and provable line of Aaron would die out. They had gathered to lay their concern before the Lord, before admitting defeat. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. 
And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. This was the angel Gabriel, the celestial name of Father Noah, who appeared to Zacharias. The prophet Joseph Smith taught a few interesting things about angels in Nauvoo, albeit unofficially. He said that if an angel ever comes to you, it is highly offensive not to look him in the face. This can be extremely hard to do because apparently they are rather like lightning and terrifying to behold. Joseph said that if a person in such a situation were to cry out, Father, strengthen me, his request would be granted, and then the fear would depart. Officially, he said, that one could also test an angelic messenger through the means recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 129. Insights such as these are just one of the rich gifts of knowledge given man through living prophets. The Father rejoices in endowing his children with knowledge whenever they will hearken to him. Angels do not like fear and have short patience for those who will not exercise enough faith to fight through it and listen to them. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Here we have further confirmation as to the concern of the mob outside the temple that day, as well as the reason for their petition to God. Zacharias feared that the official line of Aaron would die out in Israel. But at the last possible moment, God had come to save the day. There was one catch, however. The boy's name was to be John. In Hebrew, the name was Yohanan, a Hebrew name meaning Jehovah is gracious. He certainly is. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Many did rejoice. In tribute, the name John is still so beloved that it is in the top names of newborn boys all around the world. Nearly every language has a form of John. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Not only was John great in the sight of the Lord, the Lord saw him as the greatest. John also obeyed the word of wisdom, which always comes with the promise of revelation and the ability to see hidden truths, a gift that John would have in abundance. John did turn many to their God, and he went forth like Father Noah did out of the ark into the wasteland to cause it to grow afresh. Then Zacharias did the one thing you never do to Father Noah. He doubted him. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. Oh, yikes! When we explore the life of Noah together in a future feast, we will see other examples of his very short temper toward faithlessness. Good to know, if you are ever invited to meet him, Gabriel speaks the truth. You better believe it. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak, until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. 
I am sure Zacharias would have rather seen a hammer float, or a neon goat, or something cool, but he got his sign anyway. All of this delayed Zacharias from coming out of the temple when the people expected him. And the people waited for Zacharias, and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them, and remained speechless. The gossip went through the land that something miraculous had happened to Zacharias. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me, in the days wherein he looked on me, to take away my reproach among men. Zacharias finished his temple shift, even though he was now mute. When Elizabeth became pregnant in her old age, she went into hiding for a while, most likely to avoid all of the gossip, but in her heart she couldn't have been happier. A woman without children saw herself as cursed of God and incomplete in ancient times, or without a fullness of joy. Like several of Israel's most beloved matriarchs, she had witnessed the impossible, a miracle child, when such a thing was beyond hope. A miraculous birth had been one of the signs given to Mother Eve for the Messiah. Sons like Cain, Noah, Isaac, Joseph of Egypt, Moses, and now baby John were pondered over. Could they be the promised son, the hero son, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son foretold? With the birth of John, the people's joy was even more specific than that. John's birth meant that the promises of God had not failed. Zacharias, the last high priest, did have an heir. The line of Aaron would continue. Now perhaps, partially due to Zacharias's age, and absolutely due to the excessive arrogance of Edom, Herod the Great and the Roman Caesars did the unthinkable. They took it upon themselves to select the national high priest. This was not their right to do. Herod would eventually sweeten the deal by rebuilding and greatly improving Zerubbabel's temple. But interfering in the selection of the high priest and choosing men who were Jews or Edomites was unthinkable. There was very little the Jews could do about it anyway. They were a conquered people, and Herod, at least, regarded their elders with some respect and he used his wealth and power to beautify their conquered territories. In other words, Zacharias was the rightful high priest. The people knew it, and more importantly, God knew it. And now the rightful high priest was about to have a son. This joyous, expectant story continues. About six months later, the angel Gabriel came a second time to Mary, and then Joseph, her intended, and announced the birth of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Mary went into hiding, staying with Zacharias and Elizabeth. The moment that pregnant Elizabeth and pregnant Mary met, the baby John jumped in his mother's womb for joy. Even unborn, he was testifying of the long-awaited Messiah. Eventually John, and about six months after him, Jesus, were born. While Jesus received the songs of angels and shepherds, most of the nation didn't know that he had been born. John, however, was a different matter. His birth was known nationally. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, 
and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias, after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table, and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. The gossip about John spread throughout the country. There were many who suspected that he might be the Messiah. The prophet Daniel had told them to expect him around this time. And here was a miraculous birth from the barren house of the real national high priest. This was exciting. John had not been born long when wise men appeared in Judea from the east. They had been following a supernatural star and wanted to meet and present the newborn rightful king of Israel with their gifts. Tragically, but honorably, they stopped to greet King Herod and to insult him too. Matthew preserves for us the event. Matthew 2.1 Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Since the days of Daniel, the wise men, or magi in the Babylonian tongue, were seen as mystical, magical magistrates. In fact, all three of these words are connected to the root magi. It was common for kings and the wealthy to consult them for their blessings and foresight into future events. Some nations would even send for them to perform coronation rites over their rulers in order to gain heaven's blessing upon them. When these appeared unexpectedly and dared to ask the reigning king of the area, Where is the real king? You know the one who was born to be king, as opposed to you who were appointed king by a foreign power? Herod, his supporters, and all Jerusalem with him were absolutely troubled, deeply troubled. Herod didn't know what to make of such an insult. To make matters worse, these respected wise men had seen a star. They were saying that God was behind this birth as well. We will not take the time here to go into detail about Herod the Great, except to say that by this time he had already murdered some of his own children over accusations that they might usurp him. He was a cruel and paranoid man. He acted fast, gathering everybody he possibly knew. Matthew 2.4 And when Herod had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Note he demanded of them. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So now he had a location. Traditionally, 
the rightful king was to come from Bethlehem. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and said, Go, and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and, lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Herod called the wise men back to court, and this time he had a private meeting with them. It would do no good to let the court know that he had put any credence to their report. Herod was also a snake and a fox, and knew how to manipulate politics for his own benefit. Discovering when the star first appeared, he was able to calculate the approximate time of the new king's birth. Lastly, he hoped that the wise men would do the final dirty work for him. Once he had a place and an age, all he needed to know was a name. And so, he said satanically, Return to me when you find this rightful baby king, and tell me who he is, so I can go and worship him too. Pleased, the Magi left Herod and continued to Bethlehem, where they found the baby Jesus, now called a young child, and his mother and guardian father Joseph the carpenter. We must assume that the Magi believed Herod, because after they had presented the family with their gifts, a dream warned them not to return to Herod. Joseph received a dream as well, telling him to take his young family and hide in Egypt until sent for. Personally, I am sure the gifts of the Magi were a great blessing in their move. Some time passed, and when the Magi did not return, Herod realized he had been doubly disrespected. It's a dangerous thing to disrespect a powerful sociopath. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Unbelievable! But there is more. Thirty years later, we will have a clue to these terrible times when the Lord himself would accuse the elders of Israel with the following. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets, and wise men, and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues, and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. One of our many teachers of righteousness, the prophet Joseph Smith, explained what happened next. When Herod's edict went forth to destroy the young children, John was about six months older than Jesus, and came under this hellish edict. And Zacharias caused his mother to take him into the mountains, where he was raised on locusts and wild honey. When his father refused to disclose his hiding place, and being the officiating high priest at the temple that year, was slain by Herod's order, between the porch and the altar, as Jesus said. John's head was later taken to Herod, the son of this infant murderer, in a charger. Notwithstanding, there was never a greater prophet born 
of a woman than him. Now you know the story. It has been the sad history of those who follow the Lord in righteousness, that others have coveted their blessings. From Abel, all through history to Zacharias, much suffering has come from trying to steal another's blessings, and God freely gives to all who come to him. Tradition adds before Zacharias said his last goodbye to Aaron's heir that day, he went into the temple and took the mantle of Elijah, which was part of the holy artifacts of the people, and wrapped his only son in it for a blanket. A powerful act of faith, hope, and prophecy. From one Elias to another, John the Baptist would at last bear his father's love in the mantle that he wore. It is said that thirty years later, when John appeared crying out in the wilderness, he was wearing over his camel-skin garment the mantle of the great Elijah. That's how the people knew that it was the son of Zacharias returned. The important point to all of this is that John now became the official high priest of the Levitical priesthood. When it was told throughout the land that he had returned and was calling the people to him, they came. They knew who he was. Joseph Smith elaborated, John at that time was the only legal administrator holding the keys of power there was on the earth. The keys, the kingdom, the power, and the glory had departed from the Jews to the only son of Zacharias by the holy anointing and the decree of heaven. Consequently, the Jews had to obey his instructions or be damned by their own law. John had been baptizing the people and calling on them to prepare for the coming kingdom. While doing this, Jesus came and requested baptism of him. You know this story. Matthew 3.13 Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John, to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and, lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and lighting upon him. And, lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The very next day, the soon-to-be Apostle John, who was at the time still a teenager, had gotten permission from his father Zebedee to take a break from fishing and go with his father's partner, Andrew Barjona, to hear the Baptist preach. Here is his eyewitness account of what happened. John 1, 29. The next day John the Baptist seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The most important act of the high priest over the people of Israel was the selection of the lamb whose slaughter would atone for the people. All high priests, from Father Adam to Zacharias, had the duty to choose as perfect a lamb as they could find to offer to the Lord upon the altar. Mark it well. John the Baptist, the only and final high priest, chose Jesus of Nazareth as the Lamb of God. Two fishermen, soon to be special witnesses of Christ, witnessed the choosing, Andrew and young John making two witnesses. These would soon return home where Andrew would tell his brother Peter the very same. 
and young John would tell his brother James, the very same, that they had found the Messiah. The rest is history. So perfect was the Baptist's choice of the Lamb that day, that even Satan, the enemy of all mankind, would later have to admit that he could find no sin whatsoever in which to accuse or even find fault with the Lord. It is astounding and so very wonderful. What a great friend, brother, advocate, redemptive Father, and God we have in Jesus Christ. That will be an ongoing feast for another day. We need to close with this. Latter-day Saints rejoice in the knowledge that on May 15, 1829, Israel's last and greatest ironic high priest returned to earth with the keys of the Levitical priesthood. Yes, we have those keys again amongst our brethren on the earth. This will make it possible for the Kohens of Israel to perform their God-given duties in perfect righteousness again on a future day. While the particulars of this grand gift of heaven are relatively unknown to the world, they are part of the heritage of the Latter-day Saints, which we hold dear. Here is the setup and the events, as witnessed by Oliver Cowdery, the one-time Vice President and Second Elder of the Restoration. First, a short background. On a Sabbath evening, September 7, 1834, Oliver Cowdery, at the request of W. W. Phelps, began to write an account of the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oliver was handpicked by the Lord to be Joseph's scribe for a season. He would have the honor of being the first person baptized in this dispensation and eyewitness to the restoration of both the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods. While Oliver would later leave the church over some disagreements with Joseph Smith in regards to the loss of Zion City and the law of polygamy, he would testify to his dying day that the events he witnessed did in reality happen. Many years later, after the death of the prophet, Oliver would petition Brigham Young to return his name to the records of the church. Here is part of Oliver's testimony. Near the setting of the sun, Sabbath evening, April 5, 1829, my natural eyes for the first time beheld Joseph Smith. He then resided in Harmony, Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania. On Monday, the 6th, I assisted him in arranging some business of a temporal nature, and on Tuesday, the 7th, commenced to write the Book of Mormon. These were days never to be forgotten, to sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven, awakened the utmost gratitude of this bosom. Day after day I continued, uninterrupted, to write from Joseph's mouth, as he translated with the Urim and Thummim, or, as the Nephites would have said, interpreters, the history or record called the Book of Mormon. To notice, in even few words, the interesting account given by Mormon and his faithful son Moroni of a people once beloved and favored of heaven would supersede my present design. I shall, therefore, defer this to a future period and, as I said in the introduction, pass more directly to some few incidents immediately connected with the rise of this church, which may be entertaining to some thousands who have stepped forward amid the frowns of bigots and the calumny of hypocrites, and embraced the gospel of Christ. No men in their sober senses could translate and write the directions given to the Nephites from the mouth of the Savior of the precise manner in which men 
should build up his church, and especially when corruption had spread and uncertainty over all forms and systems practiced among men, without desiring a privilege of showing the willingness of the heart by being buried in the liquid grave, to answer a good conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After writing the account given of the Savior's ministry to the remnant of the seed of Jacob upon this continent, it was easy to be seen, as the prophet said it would be, that darkness covered the earth and gross darkness the minds of the people. On reflecting further, it was as easy to be seen that amid the great strife and noise concerning religion, none had authority from God to administer the ordinances of the gospel. For the question might be asked, half men authority to administer in the name of Christ, who deny revelations? when his testimony is no less than the spirit of prophecy, and his religion based, built, and sustained by immediate revelations in all ages of the world, when he has had a people on earth? If these facts were buried and carefully concealed by men whose craft would have been in danger if once permitted to shine in the faces of men, they were no longer to us, and we only waited for the commandment to be given. Arise and be baptized. This was not long desired before it was realized. The Lord, who is rich in mercy and ever willing to answer the consistent prayer of the humble, after we had called upon him in a fervent manner, aside from the abodes of men, condescended to manifest to us his will. On a sudden, as from the midst of eternity, the voice of the Redeemer spake peace to us. While the veil was parted, and the angel of God came down clothed with glory, and delivered the anxiously looked-for message, and the keys of the gospel of repentance. What joy! What wonder! What amazement! While the world was racked and distracted, while millions were groping as the blind for the wall, and while all men were resting upon uncertainty as a general mass, our eyes beheld, our ears heard, as in the blaze of day, yes, more, above the glitter of the May sunbeam, which then shed its brilliancy over the face of nature. Then his voice, though mild, pierced to the center, and his words, I am thy fellow servant, dispelled every fear. We listened, we gazed, we admired. Twas the voice of an angel from glory. Twas a message from the Most High. And as we heard, we rejoiced, while his love enkindled upon our souls, and we were wrapped in the vision of the Almighty. Where was room for doubt? Nowhere. Uncertainty had fled. Doubt had sunk no more to rise. While fiction and deception had fled forever, here was John the Baptist, come again to baptize us. But, dear brother, think, further think for a moment. What joy filled our hearts, and with what surprise we must have bowed! For who would not have bowed the knee for such a blessing? When we received under his hand the holy priesthood, as he said, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer this priesthood and this authority, which shall remain upon the earth, that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. I shall not attempt to paint to you the feelings of this heart 
nor the majestic beauty and the glory which surrounded us on this occasion. But you will believe me when I say that earth, nor men, with the eloquence of time, cannot begin to clothe language in as interesting and sublime a manner as this holy personage. No, nor has this earth power to give the joy, to bestow the peace, to comprehend the wisdom which was contained in each sentence as they were delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit. Man may deceive his fellow men, deception may follow deception, and the children of the wicked one may have power to seduce the foolish and untaught, till naught but fiction feeds the many, and the fruit of falsehood carries in its current the giddy to the grave. But one touch with the finger of his love, yes, one ray of glory from the upper world, or one word from the mouth of the Savior, from the bosom of eternity, strikes it all into insignificance, and blots it forever from the mind. The assurance that we were in the presence of an angel, the certainty that we heard the voice of Jesus, and the truth unsullied as it flowed from a pure personage, dictated by the will of God, is to me past description, and I shall ever look upon this expression of the Savior's goodness with wonder and thanksgiving while I am permitted to tarry, and in those mansions where perfection dwells and sin never comes. I hope to adore in that day which shall never cease. Oliver's witness of the Restoration will one day stand as part of the legal documents, proving to the world that God truly warned us all. The Church, and the authority needed to save mankind, is here, among us again. This concludes Season 4. We hope that you have enjoyed it, have had your testimony increased of both the ancient Word of God and for His restored Word as well. We are excited to announce that Season 5 will be on the book of Ezekiel. Season 5 will be filled with many wonderful surprises and many rich feasts on Eastern thinking. To get the most out of the coming season, you are encouraged to re-enjoy Seasons 1-4, through four, with special emphasis on those episodes that increase your Eastern thinking skills. And so, until we next feast together, may the Spirit of the Lord continue to fill your mind with joy and the peace of His good news and His promises to you. Mm -hmm.